come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode 108 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you, I have my Italian horror number 12 with featured reviews of VHS 94 is the 2021 release and Spirits of the Dead. I believe that's from 1968 is going to be the Italian horror movie that I'm actually covering on here. Didn't even realize that both of these were anthology films. Well, I knew VHS was since I had watched the first three in that series, but I had no idea that Spirits of the Dead was until I sat down and actually started to watch it. So let's end up making an interesting little double feature here for the featured reviews. And then on this episode, I also have mini reviews of Autumn Road, The Barn, which is here from 2021 as a short film. Goliath and the Vampires, Baskin, Deathgasm, Crimson Peak, and Under the Shadow. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, though. So what I'll go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review of this episode is going to be Autumn Road here from 2021. This was a screener that I got to watch. This was written and directed by Riley Cusick, who also co-starred along Lorelai Linklater and Justin Meeks. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. There's not enough ratings on IMDb or on Letterboxd right now, so I won't do that, but the synopsis is twin brothers running a haunted house and an inspiring actress are all affected by the disappearance of a young girl. So this is a movie that I got turned on to thanks to Justin Cook, as I said, as a screener. It's another one that I had never heard of, but being that it's an independent film, getting its 2021 release, and it fell into the horror category, I decided to give it a go, and the premise sounded interesting, so that also helped. So where I want to start with this one is that we have this event where an accident happened and this little girl of Winnie disappeared. If the two brothers come forward and get her help, none of this movie happens. Instead, 
the one brother of Charlie, who's a little bit more reserved, listens to his other brother of Vincent as their twins, who is a sociopath. After this incident has changed their lives forever. Now we have the characters of like Laura, Charlie, and Kennedy are all haunted by this. Vincent got a taste of something dark that he wants more of, and having this haunted house that they own is a great place for him to work. Now something that is good here is that this character of Laura is being lost. Now I don't mean like physically, but I felt the same way when I was fresh out of college. We are told that you, you know, go get your degree and then you start life. You aren't completely sure what that means though once you're out there. Laura is taking a different route. She wants to be an actress, but she isn't in Los Angeles from what I can tell. She is struggling and she doesn't help that this dark shadow of what happened to her sister. The pain is too much to come home and it looks like it has tore their family apart so she avoids it. This movie is pushing that everyone involved needs to be healed in some way, shape, or form. With all these positives I've said about the story, this movie just doesn't work well in fleshing out to a conclusion that felt satisfying. The movie focuses a lot on Laura and Charlie and then both of them interacting with Vincent. It goes off the rails though when Vincent fires everyone and auditions new actors for their haunted house. I'll be honest, by that moment I was checked out. The movie meanders for such a long stretch before it tries to pull you back in. I don't think it does well here and then some of the things that happen just don't make sense. The ending also feels empty as there is really no punishment for the characters involved. I also don't believe that characters by the end would do what they do. It feels like they had a good idea but didn't know necessarily what to do with it and then tried to give us the happiest ending that they could. That was a bit of a disappointment if I'm going to be honest. So what doesn't also help here is the acting. I think that Linklater plays her character well. She is awkward and fits for this romance that she develops for Charlie as he's awkward. And then so that's where I'm going to go over then to Cusick. I don't think he's a strong enough actor to play both characters. Being that he's the writer-director here, it feels like it might have worked better to step back and allow someone else to take this on. I think he plays Charlie well, but he isn't menacing as Vincent. Now we have Jonas Learway plays the younger version of Vincent. I think he does a really good job there. Being creepy, that is. And I mean, it's kind of interesting, but I mean, because kids can either be not great acting or they can come off creepy like we do here. It is interesting to see that we have Lar Park Lincoln in this, as I know her from Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. She doesn't have much more than a cameo here, but I can feel the grief that she's supposed to be conveying, so that was solid. I thought the rest of the cast was fine in rounding this out for what was needed. And the last thing to go into would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. For the former, I thought this was shot well. There were no issues there, and I don't get a lot in the way of effects here, but it also is more of a cerebral movie about the effects of grief. I did like the opening credits that we got. I thought those looked cool. The soundtrack also didn't stand out to me, but it also doesn't hurt the movie, which is always a positive, as I don't always necessarily notice the music. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that has some promise to it, but it was unrealized to me. I don't like to trash movies if I don't have to. I just think that there are some things that the movie wanted to do, but just failed in executing it. If it fleshed out some of the things that were introduced, this could have been good. I'd say that the acting is fine. Linklater, Park Lincoln, and Cusick as Charlie were the bright spots. And then I would also give credit here to the little girl of Maddie Lee Hendricks as Winnie. And I'd also give credit to both Learways as the twins who play the young Charlie and young Vincent. The movie is shot well, and what little effects that we got were fine. Going along with that, the soundtrack doesn't help or hinder the movie in my opinion. So for these reasons, I unfortunately have to say that this was a below average effort for me. So my rating here for Autumn Road is a 4.5 out of 10. 
But despite what I said, if you'd still like to check this out, it is available on digital and cable platforms now, including iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, Comcast, Dish, and Shaw. And then I also got to watch a short that I have a screener for of The Barn, but it looks like it might be changing its name to Guaygonal. And this is directed by Damon Nash White, who helped co-write this, along with Justice Terrapelli Jamail, who also co-starred in this with Rocio de la Grania and Miguel Sandoval, along with Nick Smith. This is a horror short that is from the United States. Now, because IMDb still has that it's not fully released yet, there are no ratings on there, and I couldn't find it on Letterboxd when I was looking. So this is one that I got the chance to check out thanks to Haley Brinkman. We had some back and forth where my email was kind of messing up, so it took me a little bit while to respond to her, but I finally did, and I got the chance to watch this. There was just a little bit of information that was provided to me that sounded interesting, and they were using some buzzwords that I'll get into here shortly. But our synopsis here is, after the disappearance of his younger sister, a man begins experiencing increasingly disturbing dreams of raw chicken. Much like that states, the first images we are getting is something on a pole. We also have a barn and someone cutting up raw chicken. It turns out that on top of this pole is actually a whole bird that has just been defeathered. This turns out to be the nightmare of the person we are following, who is portrayed by Terry Pelly Jamail. Now, he gets up and goes in another room where we see Julia, portrayed by De La Grania. Now, she is asleep. He takes one of her earrings out and places on a desk in her room, but then when he turns back, she is gone. We see images of her with the man going toward her, but her fleeing. This is an interesting way to say that she is missing. We never learn the reason why, but there are flashes across her face that something might have happened between them. Now, the deeper we get into this short, the more surreal things get. This man is led to the barn from his nightmare, where things become even more terrifying inside. So that's where I'll leave my recap, and to be honest, this is a difficult one to spoil. This short needs to be experienced. There is no dialogue, and I'm not one to read the synopsises before I, you know, watch something. So the whole time, I thought this was his daughter. It doesn't alter things when I found out to be his sister. I could still feel the longing and the despair he feels with her being gone and feeling helpless to help her. They are both able to convey things without talking through their facial expressions, which is actually quite good for the acting. I'll be honest about something here, though. I'm not entirely sure what the significance of the images of chickens are. What I will say is that it is gross. It does have a similar feel as to what would happen if a human body is chopped up. So that was one of the things that I went to for an explanation. Our lead is thinking that she could be dead, but doesn't want to believe it. These images are quite surreal, and it kept my attention to see where I could, you know, figure out what I could discover in them. What also helps here, though, is the soundtrack, cinematography, and the effects. For the former, it does some interesting things that made me feel uncomfortable. I think the musical selections are one of the strongest parts of this for sure. The images we see are also creepy, but the soundtrack elevates it. I'd give credit here as well to the cinematography. This is shot beautifully, so that helped me to get sucked into it. The effects were done practical from what I could tell. Some of them are just gross in a natural way. There are a couple of things that I would like to know more about that we see later as they were unnerving. Let's just say that there's massive sorts and I don't know what it means. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting piece of cinema. I always say that for me, shorts either work as a contained story and tell everything or they could be fleshed out to more. These are the ones that I tend to like that fall into these two groups. This is the former. I don't know if we need to extend this out as I feel like it conveys its story in an interesting way. 
The acting is interesting with no dialogue, but I think both De La Grana and Tara Pelli Jamail do well in conveying things with facial expressions. Cinematography is beautiful. Soundtrack is on point. The effects are based in a practical sense from what I could tell, and they are creepy. The only thing I'm wondering is why Raw Chicken? Despite that, I found this to be an above average short that is just below being good. So my rating here for The Barn from 2021 is a 7.5 out of 10. And the next movie I got to watch was Goliath and the Vampires. This went by the original title of Macesti Contro il Vampiro. This was directed by Sergio Carbucci along with Giacomo Gentilmomo and Carbucci also wrote this with Duucci Tassari, and this stars Gordon Scott, Lenora Ruffo, and Jacques Cernas. This is an adventure fantasy horror film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Goliath must save the kidnapped women of his village from an evil zombie leader who needs their blood to feed his soldiers. So this is another horror movie that I never heard of from 1961. Being that I'm celebrating Italian Horror Month along with the 22 shots of moods and horror, I decided to find all the movies from this year that are from Italy and check out as many of them as I could as part of my Odyssey Through the Ones. This looked to be another sword and sandal sorcery type film, which is a subgenre that's underseen by me, but I have also enjoyed quite a bit of you know these type of movies that I have seen in the past. So while searching for this movie, I realized that this was part of a series of films where Goliath would fight different villains, both natural and supernatural. Looking at the original title, his name is Makisti. Doing a quick search, this looks like a name that is associated with Hercules in mythology. These would be retitled to that name along with Goliath and Samson in other countries. I'm assuming there is the goal is to capitalize on people seeing this by seeing a familiar name. The idea that he is physically larger than most and of great strength. This is my first foray into a Goliath film technically, but I have seen an Italian Hercules film recently with Hercules in the Haunted World. With that out of the way, this movie is interesting story here. I'm not sure about where they got the mythology though. The synopsis states that Kobrak is the king of zombies. That makes sense as he is creating mindless entities that will follow him. This movie calls them robots with blood. He is credited as a vampire as well. What is interesting is that he is closer to the Eastern take on this creature than the more gothic version. His enemies in this from lore are these blue men. Their leader is Kurtik. I'm not sure if they're supposed to be, but it has me intrigued, but I can't really seem to find any additional information when I did another search there. I'll give it to them for coming up with something that is creative. What I wasn't expecting here was a bit of social commentary that actually works today. We have this small community that is most likely fishermen and farmers. They are attacked by these raiders. They feel a lot like Vikings, and their captain is Amahil, who has allegiance to Kobrak. These Vikings take their slaves to sell them in this town that is run by Sultan Abdul. The Sultan is also under fear of Kobrak. We are seeing that everyone is living under the fear of something greater than them. It is taking those that are being trampled upon to rise up and defeat the villains at the top, running things, which I kind of think is an interesting commentary that would fit today. Then to shift this over to a negative, this movie does run a bit too long for me. If there was more fleshing out of some of the story elements, I'd be on board with that. Instead though, we get a couple of dancing numbers that feel like filler and don't really amount to too much. Are the women dancing good looking? Of course, but with a movie like this, I want more of the fighting, or as I said, fill in a bit more of the legends that were getting established here. 
Then getting back to a positive, the acting is solid. Scott has a good look for this character of Goliath. His acting isn't too bad either. It is interesting that he is fighting people with weapons and just knocks them around. What I did like, though, is that when we actually get to see him in peril here. He is arrested a couple of times. He is able to get out due to his strength, but I like seeing him at least somewhat fail. Ruffo is attractive in her role. The same can be said for Gianna Maria Canali and Annabella Incontrera. What I like, though, is that the character of Astra, how villainous she actually is as this slave, and then Cernas is solid in this mysterious way. And then we also have a boy here of Rocco Vitalazzi. I thought he was solid. Then we also have Mario Felicciani, who is interesting as the Sultan since he is a pawn like those underneath him. I did like seeing that. Then the last person I want to give credit to here would be Guido Salino, who I thought was a fit for this villainous creature as well of Kobrak. I thought the acting on the whole did work here for me. So the last thing to go into here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, I like what they do here to make things look heavy so when Goliath picks him up, it makes him look stronger. Things were done practical there, which is good. I could tell where things would break intentionally, but this movie is from 1961. I'm not going to hold that against it. We did get some ghostly things that are done with superimposing. That worked for me as well. I like the look of Kobrak along with his soldiers. The blue men look fine. Some of the fight scenes don't look great, but again, that is the era. The cinematography was solid enough. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. The best part is the theme that they use for Kobrak when he would appear. It is a violin-heavy type music, and it adds a creepy vibe. So in conclusion here, this is a solid enough film. I'm still new to this subgenre of the Italian sword and sandal movies. I do like what we're getting here with the supernatural twist with Kobrak, the vampire. The acting I thought was good across the board. There is some filler, but for the most part, the story works well for me. If anything, this could be a bit more fleshed out. The effects weren't great, but I'm not going to hold that against the movie due to the era. Cinematography was fine, and the soundtrack about the same. Theme for the villain, though, was on point. I'd say this is an above-average movie for me. I recommend it if you're into these type of flicks for sure. So my rating here for Goliath and the Vampires is a 6.5 out of 10. Then my next review is Baskin. This is from 2015. This was directed by Ken Overall, who also had help with writing this with Olgunkin, Aaron Akay, and Irsen Sadakoglu. This stars Mehmet Sarahoglu, Gorkim Kassel, and Ergon Kuyusu. This is a crime drama, fantasy, horror, mystery thriller film that is from Turkey. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a squad of unsuspecting cops go through a trapdoor to hell when they stumble upon a black mass in an abandoned building. This is a film that I had never seen but heard quite a few podcasts talking about. It was receiving mostly praise. So it made a list of films that I missed that I needed to check out. Now, I'll admit, I didn't know anything coming into this at first time. I had seen the trailer for it as it was showing before a lot of movies I had been seeing in the theater at the time. Now, my first viewing was at the Gateway Film Center when it was presented by Fright Club. I have now given it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So one of the things I kind of want to start off here is that this is one of the first horror films to be released from Turkey. And I'm blown away by that because this is good, especially for a first effort. Now, our writer-director here of Everall does a great job at creating such a nightmare atmosphere. You don't really know what is real and what isn't. 
with what we see at the climax, that was something I enjoyed. The location of this is interesting as well. It is an abandoned building that was a former police station during the time of the Ottoman Empire, before becoming a like horse stable. It is interesting, it's history, to have a bunch of police coming back to check it out. This is a film that I do think people need to experience. So I'm not going to go too much into what we see necessarily. I will say that this gets brutal when we meet Sarah Hoglu's character of Baba or the father. It becomes a full-blown nightmare from there. His followers are dirty and moving in ways that are unnerving. Things from previous in the film, including the boy we saw earlier and things that characters say is referenced back to, these are all things that I can get on board for, and I will admit, I'm a sucker for cults in films. There's also the concept of time where it is more of a flat circle instead of following a sequential order as well. It isn't the most logical thing, but I just dig that. Now, there is something that I did have a slight confusion about. The film is such a nightmare, and we get a lot of that logic here, but I don't understand some of the things that happen. I don't like everything to be explained, but I definitely needed a little bit more to piece things together here. In the case for this, though, I would have liked... Just know a little bit more about like the frogs and the cult itself. I just think it went too ambiguous and I kind of lost my way with it. But I mean, it's more about the visuals and kind of seeing what these people are going through. I will have to admit that the pacing of the film was a bit off as well. It started off good and it's interesting how we meet the characters. I thought that there was a stretch there that after words, it kind of just stalled a bit. The film actually has a low running time as well, being just over 90 minutes. I think the film just kind of focused on some things that we didn't need to and gets a bit odd. Now, once it hits the abandoned station, though, I loved everything there, and I was locked in, and it just keeps getting darker. I liked the ending as well. I wasn't expecting that, but when I figured out where it was going, I was on board. So then for this film, I do have to commend the acting because I thought it was really good. Sarah Hoglu was so creepy in his role. He doesn't seem to be that tall, but just the presence that he has in his look. He was wearing a bunch of clocks, which is a theme that reoccurs throughout this, and I thought that was a good touch. Then we also have like Gorkom Casal as Arda, who is this younger cop. And he's actually kind of a rookie here. We also have Ergen Kuyusu, who is kind of like a, he's our boss. And he feels a little bit responsible because he's been looking after Arda for a while. And then we also have Muharram Bayrak, who is an interesting character as well as the two older officers. It is crazy that normally for me, I can't differentiate characters in movies like this, especially ones not from the United States. I thought this film did so well at introducing everybody and making them distinct enough. And I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well, especially the cult and the frog hunters that we get to meet. There is just something unnerving about them all. So that brings me next to the effects. And from what I could tell, they were done practically and it was great. I will admit the climax scene had me cringing. The things that they were doing to people looked real and it was brutal. I also liked the look of the cult members. That was solid and it was also quite scary. The film, as I've said, feels like a nightmare and the effects really just kind of helped to build that up. And also getting help here would be the score and soundtrack for the film I thought was good. There were a few times that I was sucked into it and from what I could tell it was like mostly kind of like metalish music. Not necessarily my go-to genre, but a film like this it fits perfect. It really just helps to build the atmosphere and ramp up the fear for everything that is happening for sure. So all that said, I am definitely glad that I finally got around to seeing this film and, how, and giving it a second viewing. What really ticks boxes for me are things that we get here, like the cult, which is a good thing when you're coming into this film. It does come with its issues as being too ambiguous and some slight pacing issues. I do think the acting effects score and overall story as well feel like they're definitely, you know, out to help it. 
I will warn you that this film is from Turkey, so I had to watch it with subtitles on. If that's not an issue and you like films about cults, I would definitely give this one a viewing, as I found this to be a good one for sure. So my rating here for Baskin is an 8 out of 10. And I also watched Deathgasm. This is from 2015. This is written and directed by Jason Howden. This stars Milo Cawthorn, James Joshua Blake, and Kimberly Crossman. This is an action comedy horror music film that is from New Zealand. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being two teenage boys unwittingly summon an ancient evil entity known as the Blind One by delving into black magic while trying to escape their mundane lives. So this is a film that I heard about when I first got into listening to horror movie podcasts. I added on a list of films to see, and when the podcast Under the Stairs picked this as their movie club challenge for February of 2019, I was excited to finally check it out. I'm now giving it a second viewing as part of the summer series on the same podcast as well. So I really should lead off here saying that I had a blast with this one. I do like some metal, but I'm far from being a metalhead. The references that are used from this group are great. They do a fantastic job of incorporating this, and it's even great to see the female character here of Medina, who at first doesn't understand it, but doing what she can to try. I like that she is showing interest in our main character of Brody, who's kind of a loner in a place where he doesn't really fit in, so she's trying to do what she can to connect with him. It is quite interesting to see that she is also the gorgeous one. We normally see this the other way around. And we do get some great, you know, metal fantasies to show what it's feel like to get into this type of music like they are and for it to connect with them. Now, something that really struck me was how much this felt like the Evil Dead. We are having people being possessed by demons and there's a chainsaw in the film too. This also has comedy, which the first film didn't intentionally have, but films later in that series went into. Another reference I liked is that the band's name that in this movie is Haxon's Sword. Now, I'm looking into the history of horror and knowing that the film of Hoxon was a dark, silent era film that was taken from an Inquisitor's book. It actually tells the history of possession and demons throughout history, which I give this film props for doing its homework. Now, not everything is a positive, though. I don't think all the comedy landed, but quite a bit did. I was literally laughing out loud by myself, which I have to give credit to any film that can get me to do. After a second viewing, it doesn't have the same impact, but I still enjoyed what the movie was doing there. This film actually carries some deeper underlying messages that I was on board for as well. We have the issue of bullying in school. I like that they made the hot girl standing up to her boyfriend, who thinks it's a fun thing to do. I felt for Brody, even though I was never bullied myself to the extent that he is. The helplessness he experienced was sad, and he turns to black magic to try to fix it. Now, his friend of Zack doesn't help the situation, but it also seems like he might have some underlying issues that stem from his home life. For being a fun horror comedy, it does have some deeper aspects that I did really end up enjoying. Now, pacing for this film is also good. Part of it is that it's 86-minute runtime that we don't get a lot of filler. It keeps this film moving at a good pace, the characters are introduced well, and it doesn't take too long to get to the horror aspects of the film, which we get some good interactions between the humans and those that are possessed. I thought the ending was good and fitting for what they were doing there as well. Much like Evil Dead, I do think there might be a little bit of inconsistencies with the possession. But there are some aspects of this that I thought they didn't fully explore with this cult. I do like the idea of this and wouldn't be surprised if there are groups out there like this. They are shown fairly early on and then disappear for long stretches. I think they could have added a bit more there and it wouldn't make the film that much longer. Just something I noticed that I could have used more of. Now this also brings me to the acting. I thought that Cawthorn was solid as our lead. He portrays someone who is down on himself 
and those around him aren't helping. His growth was good into this hero as well. I like that Crossman is also solid and wants to be there for him. She is gorgeous and her acting was good. Blake was solid as the secret jerk in the film as he does piss me off. So I have to give credit for, you know, him sparking a reaction out of me. I do like the redemption of his character in the end as it does show the growth that is needed. Effects for this were also pretty solid. I thought all of the practical ones look great. There is quite a bit of blood and gore, which a film like this definitely benefits from. I love the creativity that they use for weapons in the movie and the ones that they combine together. There's even a dildo fight in this film against the demons, which was hilarious. The look of them were also solid. I did have some issues with some of the CGI effects. They don't look great, and I'm glad they didn't use too much of that, though, as well. Didn't even mind the effects when introducing characters, and I know some of them will have problems there, but the film is also shot beautifully as well. Now, this brings me to the soundtrack. As I said, I'm not a huge metal fan, but I don't mind it. I thought the score of this was perfect for what they were going for. I do think the metal really kind of helps to make its place in horror and definitely uses it to the fullest in that aspect for this movie. It fit for what they were going for and during some of the more action-packed scenes, it really gets me going. Now with that said, this film was a big surprise for how much I liked it. I came in knowing a little as I could and had a lot of fun. This isn't a new concept, but they put their own twist on it, which is what I like. I thought the underlying issues that they explored were good and still relevant today. The acting was good in my opinion, as were the practical effects and the score. The CGI I wasn't a fan of. The pacing was good as well. There are some minor issues that I had here, but I ended up having a lot of fun the first time around. It doesn't hold up as well for me after the second viewing, but I still found it to be a good movie. So my rating this time around for Deathgasm is an 8 out of 10. And I also watched Crimson Peak. This is also from 2015. This was directed and co-written by Guillermo del Toro, and his co-writer was Matthew Robbins. This stars Mia Waskakowski, Jessica Chastain, and Tom Hiddleston. This is a drama, horror, mystery, romance thriller that is a co-production between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love of her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, she is swept away to a house that breathes, bleeds, and remembers. So this is a film that when I first heard about it, I was excited. I'm a fan of Guillermo del Toro, and at the time I had seen things like Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, and Mimic. Since then, I'm much more versed in his works, and I'll be honest, the first time I saw this, I was lukewarm on it, though. I knew it was good, but I was expecting something different, which is on me. Now, I've given it a second viewing as part of the summer series for the podcast, Under the Stairs. So, I'm going to start is that I was late to this movie. I had unfortunately missed this one when it was in theaters when it first came out. I had looked out that the Gateway Film Center did a tribute to Del Toro, and this was in 35mm. So, that was quite an experience. Being able to see it that way just shows how visually stunning this movie is. The ghosts look great, and the red soil at Crimson Peak is so vivid against how dreary the house is. It makes them pop, and it's visually amazing. There is CGI with the ghosts, but I didn't have any issues with that. The practical effects were also good, and they just bring such character to the house, but I'll come back to that here shortly. Now, where I'm going to go with the story would be there are some interesting aspects to it. I love that the character of Edith wants to be a writer, and that this whole film is an allegory to the story that she is writing. The ghosts aren't the focal point of this movie, much like she says about her own story. This is a gothic romance where the ghosts are helping Edith put together the truth of what she is involved with. I did like that aspect of how things play out with the overall story. It is also interesting that Edith is told to incorporate a love story into hers. Thomas 
when he is trying to honor her father's wishes, asks her what she knows of love. She is blinded by him, and it leads to things later. I'll now circle back to the house having character. As the synopsis states, the house is almost alive. Edith saw ghosts before ever meeting Thomas, but upon arriving at the mansion, she is seeing more. They are trying to tell her what happened to them and to prevent it from happening to her. Lucille and Thomas, who are brother and sister, are harboring quite a few secrets. The house makes odd noises due to it being in disrepair. When the wind blows, it's almost like it's breathing. The red clay that is around the area bleeds in as there is a mine of it below the house. This has a feel of the fall of the House of Usher from Edgar Allan Poe as the house is falling apart much like the Sharp family. It almost feels like it is alive as well. So that should be enough for the story, so I'll go next to the acting, which is good across the board. Wachakowski is someone I don't see a lot of, but I think she's underrated. Her nativity, she brings to the role that is played on, but you don't know about her being able to see ghosts. At least that's what the Sharps don't realize. She is strong in this ability, and I thought it was believable in her seeking the truth. Jessica Chastain is another solid actress. I think her role in this film is quite subdued, but we get to see more of that as tensions rise, and it makes sense as to why. It worked well for me. Tom Hiddleston was fine as the baronet. The only thing I noticed in there is that he's a bit awkward, and that's a lot between him and Edith. It doesn't bother me as it makes sense in the end. Charlie Hunnam doesn't impress me a lot here, but I think that's a lot of it is just lack of screen time. I like him as an actor, it's just missing something there. Doug Jones I have to commend because he is one of the best physical actors out there. As I said, the acting here is great across the board. So the last thing I want to go into would be the cinematography and soundtrack. I've already said how stunning this movie is. Something else that helps is the editing of this one. There are some great transition that work for me, and I did have a bit of an issue though with the pacing. It feels like it meanders a bit, but I can't blame this too much as that's how most of the gothic novels also feel. It's a slow burn. I have to give Del Toro credit here as he does capture this aspect. The score of the film works and well in building the atmosphere the movie needs. They go with a lot of piano as the basis and it helps for that gothic feel. So now with that said, this movie I liked the first time, but it's gone up for the second viewing. Visually, this movie is stunning. I just need to reiterate that one more time and the story itself I like. It is interesting that the story that Edith is writing is an allegory to what is happening in hers. I enjoy how the film plays out in the end. The acting is good across the board. Waskakowski is the star, though. The CGI that was used looked great, as did the practical effects that were used. The score also helps. That was, you know, another positive. I still have a bit of a pacing issue, but it's hard for me to fault this type of movie. Overall, I've come up on this one. I now find this to be a good movie and one that I'd recommend seeing if what I've said works for you. Also, if you're a fan of Del Toro, as this might be one of his most visually stunning films that he's made. So my rating here for Crimson Peak is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for my last mini-review of this week is going to be Under the Shadow. This is from 2016. This was written and directed by Babak Anvari and the stars Nargis Rashadi, Avan Mashadi, and Bobby Nadiri. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, thriller, war film that is from... The United Kingdom, Jordan, Qatar, and Iran. This is currently sitting on a 6.9, nice, on IMDb, and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, as a mother and daughter struggle to cope with the terrors of post-revolution war-torn Tehran of the 1980s, a mysterious evil begins to haunt their home. So this is a movie that I'll be honest, I didn't know much about until getting into horror movie podcasts. It is one 
that went on a list of ones to see. And I'm doing so now as this is part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So where I want to start with this one is that there's a lot of social commentary here. Our main character of Shade is interesting. She is fighting for her rights during the revolution, and now she has to face the consequences of her actions, which means that she cannot complete her studies as being a doctor, and she tries to, you know, get back into school to finish that, and they deny her. It makes me wonder how good her grades were at the time to not allow her to resume her studies. I do think a lot of this could be that she's a woman. They don't seem to have a lot of rights in a country like Iran. Now, we get to see that when she flees into the night without her shawl to cover her head, she is terrified just wants to protect her daughter. That is the least of her worries. There seems to also be a bit with her husband of Araja toward her. He doesn't think that she really wants to be a doctor. From his point of view, she feels bad about her mother passing away, and it was her mother's dream for her to become a doctor. Shade also feels like she is being forced to stay home with their daughter when she wants more independence. Whatever her reasons are, I think she should be allowed to follow her dreams. Now, where I'll go next is where this movie is taking place. I've already brought up that Shade is scolded for going out without covering her head. I have not been to the Middle East, so I don't know if it's gotten more progressive there since this movie, you know, taking place in the 80s, but I'm assuming not. It feels like what I've come to understand with like the Soviet Union, East Germany, or North Korea. You have to be constantly vigilant. They could get in trouble for having a VCR in the tapes that they do. Shade has to scold Dorsa, who's their daughter, for bringing it up in front of a stranger. Having to live life this way is another type of fear that adds another layer to the horror. Now, I haven't actually gotten to the supernatural aspects yet. What I love here is that there might actually not anything happening there and all in their heads. Dorsa believes that there is a djinn after her. I love that Shade is a woman of science, so she doesn't believe in it because these are all fairy tales. Her friend of Mrs. Fakir and the wife of the landlord of Mrs. Abrahami both believe in the tales of them. Dorsa claims that a mute boy told her about it. As things go on, Shade thinks that she might see it as well. The problem is that it's only these two. Some of the things that are said by the entity are extremely hurtful. I just like the movie can be read as the djinn is real or not. Either way, it works. So that should be enough for the story, so I'll go over text of the acting here. I thought Rashidi is good as the mother here. What she is dealing with with both the outside world and at home is tough. She wants to maintain her personality and not just become a mother. I thought she did good there. Manshadi is solid as the child here. I liked Naduri as well. He loves his wife, and she's also just trying to be practical with things that he is saying. This movie is about these three and more with Shade along with Dorsa. I also liked Aram Gashemi and Susana Farokhania as they fill in with the lore that we need there. And then you also have people like Ray Haratian and Bijan Demishmand to keep Shade down. I thought the acting overall was just good. So the final things to go into here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the former, they go a lot with CGI when we're seeing the entity. It looked good, though, so I had no issues there. It feels like this is taking place in the 1980s without going too heavy. It captures that feel of Iran as well. I'll give credit that to the cinematography for some of this on top of it. It helps to hide things when needed, and it also made me wonder if Shade was seeing the things that she was. Aside from the soundtrack being good and helped to build the atmosphere that was needed, so in conclusion here, this is an interesting take on the Haunted House film. I like that we are getting this from a different country and with an entity I know of, but don't know a lot about. The acting is good in bringing the characters to life, and I think that the social commentary helps to deepen the story here. The effects are done mostly CGI, but I think how it is shot works there. 
The cinematography and soundtrack are both solid to build towards what they need. I'd say this is a good movie, and it is one that I'm looking forward to revisiting now for sure. So my rating here for Under the Shadow is an 8 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do then is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Police search warrant! Could be no one left alive in here. Do I just press the button? Press the red button. Just press it. I assume they're paying extra for this. Yes. This is a remarkable story. Hello? Hello? Veggie Masher turns your vegetables into a tasty, mm, mouth-watering paste. All are and for my first featured review on this episode is going to be VHS 94. This is from here in 2021. This is directed by a group of people because this is a bunch of shorts that are all compiled together with a wraparound story. And the directors are Simon Barrett, Stephen Konstowski, Chloe Okuno, Ryan Prose, Jennifer Reeder, and Timo Tajajanto. And the writing credits, much of the same, we have Jennifer Reeder, Chloe Okuno, Simon Barrett, Timo Tajajanto, Ryan Prose. And then the anthology concept are David Bruckner and Brad Miska. This stars Anna Hopkins, Christian Potenza, and Brian Paul, while also featuring Tim Campbell, Gina Louise Phillips, Hume Baugh, Sean Sullivan, Thiago Dos Santos, Sophia McCullough, Sean Patrick Dolan, Anthony Purpos, Kyle Durak, Dimitri Kalisi, Connor Sweeney, Kyle Legend, Devin Chin Chong, Daniel Matmore and Adam Keith Wilson. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between the United States and Indonesia. This is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being a police SWAT team investigates about a mysterious VHS tape and discovers a sinister cult that has pre-recorded material which uncovers a nightmarish conspiracy. So this is a sequel that I didn't realize they were doing until it popped up on an October movie challenge that I was participating in. This was a movie that I didn't get around to seeing then, but I knew I was going to end up checking it out regardless, as this was a bonus watch over on that. So I decided to go ahead and pair this up as a featured review on this podcast, and it worked out much better than I was thinking. So what I will say is that I enjoyed the original and the sequel, but the last one was a letdown, so I kind of had to temper my expectations there. 
So just to do some featured notes then before I get into the movie itself is I'll start off with the director here of Barrett, who is an interesting one. He only has four directing credits. Three of them are shorts with The Nothing Deal from 2000, his segment in VHS 2, and now here. His feature film debut is Seance, which is out this year, but I haven't seen it as of yet. Then there's Taja Janto, who has 17 credits, 11 are in horror. I've seen three with him having a segment in the ABCs of Death, VHS 2, and now this here. There are some other movies by him that I do want to check out as I've heard a little bit about him. And then we have Kontansky, who has, is someone I covered earlier on this podcast when I watched his movie of Psycho Goreman. I have seen three of his works with The Void and now this. Then I'll go over here to Reader, who has 34 directing credits. And then she has three of them in genre, with her feature film debut in this is Knives and Skin, which I had not heard of. She also did a short called The Dunes before this one here. So then there's Okuno, who has four credits. Her other one in horror was a short called Slut that I had not heard of. Then the last director is Prose, who has three credits. His only other one in genre was Low Life, which was an interesting little movie that I did enjoy. Now I'll go back to Barrett as a writer, who has 19 credits. I've seen seven with Dead Birds, Your Next, VHS, its sequel, The ABCs of Death, Blair Witch, and now this. And he also did The Guest as well. Then I'll go over to Bruckner, who has nine credits. All look to be shorts in a bigger movie with like The Signal, VHS, Southbound, and now this one here. I've seen his last three that I just named off. As a writer, we have Tajanto has 12 credits, eight are in genre, and I've only seen his two works in VHS 2 and now here. Reader has 27 total writing works. It is the same three that are in horror with me seeing only this one. The same is kind of going for Okuno and Prose as directors for their writing credits as well as I've only seen, you know, the one in horror and that's the only ones that they have there. Now moving to the actors, I'll be starting here with Hopkins. She has 17 credits. This is her only one in genre at this time and that I've seen. Much of the same for Legend. She has two credits. Her only other one looks to be a Disney Channel thing called Descendants. And then finally, there is Lloyd, who has eight credits. This is the only one that I have seen, and in horror. So for this movie, we are starting with the story of Holy Hell is the name that it has, which is our wraparound story. We have this SWAT team that is made up of Petro, who is portrayed by Kimmy Choi, Nash, who is portrayed by Nicolette Purse, Sprayberry, who is Thomas Mitchell, Spivy, portrayed by Rodrigo Fernandez Stoll, Osler, who is Dax Ravina, Tom, who is William Jordan, and Slater, who is Drew Virgiver. There's also a cameraman of Kevin, who's portrayed by Kevin P. Gable. They believe there's a drug ring inside of this warehouse. They're going in to break it up. We will continue to come back to their story a few different times, but things aren't what they're expecting inside. Not everyone is who they seem, and the tapes around this place might harbor a dark secret. And that's where we go into each one of these, is that they're playing in different ways, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to do to go into each one. But in the first story that we actually go into then is Storm Drain. We have Holly Marciano, who's portrayed by Hopkins. Now, she's a reporter that goes into the sewers with her cameraman of Jeff, who's portrayed by Potenza. They're following a story about people seeing a half-rat, half-man creature called, of course, Ratman. Their producer wants them to go into the sewers, but at first, they're against this. They see an odd guy staring at them while they're filming outside of one of the entrances. So they decide to go a bit deeper and, you know, film in their story there. They hear something and they decide to go in farther. They discover what they were looking for and much more. Then we get a commercial here before going into The Empty Wake. This has Haley, who's portrayed by Legend, who is an employee at a funeral home. 
Now, she's running a wake while her bosses leave, and this is going to be almost like an overnighter. Only one person shows up, and things get creepier from there. Now, there is a storm outside that is getting worse, and that is what she believes is why more people haven't come. Haley decides to call her friend to learn about the person who died. Now, things take a darker turn as the power goes out. The next story is the subject, where there is a scientist who is portrayed by Buddy Ross, who tries to combine humans with technology. When he thinks he has succeeded, a SWAT team busts into his laboratory, and mayhem ensues from there. Then our last story is Terror. This is following a like the first Patriot something or another militia. They're a group of religiously inspired guys who have weapons and are training. What they really are is a terrorist group. They're led by Greg, who's portrayed by Lloyd, and they're holding a man prisoner. And he's portrayed by Brendan McCurtry Howlett. We see as they execute him. Their plan is to attack a federal building, and we see that they're buying an arsenal from a familiar face. This prisoner plays a much bigger part of their plan, but there is a snag when they decide to celebrate ahead of their mission, and this prisoner has a dark secret. So that should recap the stories that we have here enough. What I will say is that this is a solid anthology film. We have a solid group of stories here that none of them were bad for me, which is already a positive and makes this better than the third one. The first story that we get is interesting because it takes place in the city that I reside in of Columbus, Ohio. And they're exploring this urban legend of Ratma. I don't love where they take it, though. There are some good implications, but I do have some slight issues. But The Empty Wake is an interesting story with some terrifying realism there. The subject is a cheesy, fun film that deals a bit with body horror in the vein of, like, Tetsuo the Iron Man. I do think that the names are flipped for Holy Hell and Terror, in my opinion. I do enjoy Holy Hell and what they did there. It is mocking militias and showing how bumbling they are. And it feels close to how many of them there are. And then Terror is interesting as I think it is lacking a bit, but I do want to know a bit more. What I will say is that there are a few of those, and I would be fine if they fleshed out to a feature as there's some interesting ideas for these shorts that I think there is much more to explore. Now, since these all are shorts and not a lot to the story, I'll move over to the acting next. I'm not going to break down everyone as we have a lot of people involved. I thought Hopkins was good as Holly. I rather enjoyed where her character ended up. Legend is someone else who I thought did well. She has a lot to do by herself or talking to someone over the phone until things get crazy at the climax. I thought she did a good job there. I liked Ross as the mad scientist. Captain Hassan, who's portrayed by Donnie Elamasa, was also insane, so it makes an interesting dichotomy between the two. And then another member of his team is Jono, portrayed by Juan Bion Sabantoro. Now, he's a member of that SWAT team, as I was saying, who has a heart and doesn't necessarily take orders blindly. Now, the guys play their roles well in Terror and the same for Holy Hell, but no one was bad and no one really was great either. So then I'll go over next to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. As for the effects, this is an interesting to grade a movie on when you have multiple shorts done by different people. There is some CGI here that works well, and when it's, especially if it's kept in the shadows. I'll give credit here to Storm Drain, The Empty Wake, Terror, and Holy Hell. I could tell it was CGI most of the time, but it was only the subject where I had issues with it, really. It doesn't ruin it. I'll just say that across the board that the cinematography was good. Each director has their own style that comes together. As for the soundtrack, it doesn't necessarily stand out, but it does fit. And once again, there's no issues there for what they're doing, especially because all of these are found footage films. So like, you don't necessarily have to have the great soundtrack to go along with that. So then before I close this out here, I'm going to do just a little bit of trivia that I found on the INDB page. And by literally like little, I mean one is that in the segment, Terror, you may notice that the creature's cage has garlic hung on the walls. 
This has been associated as a possible defense against something here. And there's also crosses there as well. So that in conclusion here, this is a solid anthology. None of the stories are great to me, but I will give credit here that none of them were bad either. If I have to choose, I'd probably give it to Terror or The Empty Wake as my favorite. The acting is good across the board. The effects are as well. There are some weak points with the CGI though. Cinematography is good, and I'd say that the soundtrack works as well. They do have some good things with the sound design that I do also enjoy, especially when you're trying to add that realism of found footage. Overall, I'd say this is an above average one, just missing out on being good for me. So my rating here for VHS 94 is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review.
And for my second featured review on this episode is going to be Spirits of the Dead from 1968. This went by the original title of Histories Extraordinaries. And this is directed amongst Federico Fellini, Luis Mali, and Roger Vadum. Now, all of these are from Edgar Allan Poe short stories, as this is an anthology movie. So, the other writers are for the adaptations are Vadum, as well as Pascal Cousin, Molly, as long with Clement Biddlewood. And then there's also some dialogue was helped out by Daniel Bolanger. And then Fellini and Bernardo Zapponi helped write that last segment as well. This stars Jane Fonda, Bridget Bardot, and Alan DeLon, as well as also featuring Terrence Stamp, James Robertson Justice, Salvo Randone, Francois Prevost, Peter Fonda, Marlene Alexandri, David Brasson, Katia Christine, Peter Dane, Georges Duking, Felipe Lamar, Carla Merlier, Serge Marquand, Umberto Diorsini, and Renzo Palmer. This is a drama horror mystery film that is a co-production between Italy and France. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being an anthology film from three European directors based on stories by Edgar Allan Poe, which is a cruel princess haunted by a ghostly horse, a sadistic young man haunted by his double, and an alcoholic actor haunted by the devil. So this movie that I'll be honest, I didn't know much about until recently. It appeared on the most popular Italian horror film that I hadn't seen yet on Letterboxd. Before seeing this though, I realized that all these adaptations were of Poe stories as well. Looking at the title of each of the stories, I don't know if I've ever read them, or if I had, they just didn't stick with me. So I was kind of excited to give this one a go, as it did take me a little bit to find it, but I was able to watch. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do a little bit about some of the key players here, and I'll start with our director of Fellini. He has 28 directing credits. Only two of them are in the horror genre, and it looks like, though, this short was also released theatrically, on top of being part of this group here. I've only seen this movie, though, from the director. Then there is Male, who has 32 credits. Of them, two are in horror. This was his first, and then some years later, he would do Black Moon. I've only seen this one here, and I've never actually heard of the other one, I don't think. And then moving to Vadim, we have 27 directing credits there. Of them, I've seen two of his movies, and it looks like he worked with Bardo a lot. He does have two horror films, with his first one being Blood and Roses, which I have seen, and that would be both of his horror movies that I've watched so far from its director. I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Fellini has 45 credits as a writer, and in horror, this is it. Male, much of the same. He has 18 credits. The same two are in horror, as are the same as him as being a director. As for Edgar Allan Poe, I've now seen 15 of his 119 adaptations. Vadim has 25 writing credits, much like the others. It is the same two that I've already said, and this is the only one that I've seen. Then moving to Zeppoini, we have 42 credits in writing. Six of them are in horror. This is his first, and it looks like he's wrote with Fellini a lot, and they would work together regularly. And he also did help to write Deep Red, which is kind of cool there that he worked with Argento. And those are the only two that I've seen from him, though. As for Cousins, this is his only writing credit. Wood has six credits, two are in horror. It looks like he worked with Zepponi on a movie called Leonore, 
which I haven't seen this one yet. And then moving to our actors, I'll start with Bardot. She's been in 67 works. This is the only horror film and the only movie that I've seen her in. I do know the name and she does look familiar though. Then we have her co-star of Delon, who has 115 credits. I've only seen him in this, and this is the only horror film that he was in. Then to Jane Fonda, she has 121 credits. I've seen her in five movies. This was the only horror film that she'd ever been in, but I have seen her in Clute. This is where I leave you, The Butler and the China Syndrome. And then an actor I've brought up recently is Terrence Stamp, as he was in Last Night in Soho. I have now seen 13 of his 92 credits. And then finally will be Peter Fonda. I've seen nine of his 111 appearances. Seven of his are in horror. This was his first followed by Race with the Devil. I've seen both of them. And then another one that I've seen was an odd movie of Nausea. Other than that, I've seen him in Wild Hogs, The Trip, Ghost Rider, and The Boondock Saints 2. So what I found interesting about this movie is that it is an anthology. But it doesn't have a wraparound story. We go right into our first tale, which is Metzingerstein. This is the last name of our lead, who is Contessa Frederike, who is portrayed by Fonda. Now, we learn that she inherited a great fortune and lives a life of debauchery. She is troubled by a nightmare of someone being dead, so she and her group move out to a castle where she was raised. It is here that brings her closer to her cousin of Baron Wilhelm Berlifzing, who is portrayed by Peter Fonda. Now, she mocks him and he ignores her. The two have a chance encounter, but he declines an offer to have dinner at her castle. She has his barn burned to the ground in retaliation. This ends up causing her great sadness, and a strange black horse shows up at her castle. In a way to make amends, she becomes obsessed with it. Now, our second story is that of William Wilson. This is following our lead of the same name, who is portrayed by Delon. He goes to church to ask forgiveness from a priest, portrayed by Palmer. William tells his tale that started as a boy about the horrible things that he's done over the years and how a doppelganger of him shows up to thwart them. It ends in murder. Then our final story is that of a great British actor by the name of Toby Dammit, portrayed by Stamp. Now he comes to Rome to star in a movie. We see that success has taken its toll on him as he's an alcoholic who is struggling to keep it together. He believes himself to be haunted by a little girl in white, portrayed by Marion Yarrow, who he thinks to be the devil. Toby tries to hold it together, but his condition makes him unstable. So that should be enough for the recap of these stories that we're getting here. Where I want to start would be breaking down these stories. As they're all almost the length of the movie overall. It is coming in at just over two hours. Each one of these shorts is extended more than you'd get in an anthology normally, which I did enjoy. I'm normally a fan of a wraparound tale to help connect them, but the stories have an interesting connection in that they're all from Poe and focus on a strong lead. By having that, I'm not bothered. So our first tale is that of Contessa Frederike de Metzenderstein. She is interesting in that she leads a life of lust and debauchery, as I've said. She is described in that being a petty Caligula, and that is fitting. Everyone around her loves that they can drink and have free love with anyone there, just so much as they keep her happy. So that's the positive of being around her. The negative, though, is that if you upset her, she'll punish you. She thinks that due to her beauty that her cousin of Wilhelm will agree to her offer. When he turns her down, he meets her wrath. Wilhelm is more in touch with nature, so she believes that the strange horse that shows up at her castle is him. I like that there is a potential supernatural angle here. No one knows where this horse came from. There's also this tapestry that Frederike loved with a horse that looked similar to the one that showed up. 
when she had the barn burned, this horse in the image that was, you know, burned was there, but now that it's gone, so she demands it be fixed. The man trying to has issues with his hands recreating it, and he doesn't understand why. There's also this idea that this could all be in her head out of grief and depression for what she's done. Now, the next tale is William Wilson, which is also interesting in how depraved our narrator is. We get three instances where he is doing something bad and this doppelganger shows up to stop him. Normally in stories like this, a doppelganger is evil. William, though, bullies a child while in school. He attempts to murder a woman while trying to be a doctor. And then finally, as a soldier, he plays a game of cards against Giuseppina, who is portrayed by Bardo, where he is cheating to win. This is an interesting story of how, for humanity, we have two sides. I rather enjoyed how this ended up and makes me wonder if there was ever a second William Wilson or not. And the last one would probably be my least favorite. I think that Stamp's performance is great as Toby. This one just didn't have much direction. Fellini did an excellent job at making this visually stunning story. There are these weird elements going on and it works in that Toby is an alcoholic who is not allowed to drink until he's done working. It feels like we are seeing someone go through withdrawals and just lose it. Toby has it in his head that the devil is following him and driving him mad, so I do like those aspects of it, and I'll be honest, this little girl is creepy. So that should be enough for breaking on the story, so as for the acting, I've already said that Stamp was great. I think that Jane Fonda and DeLon are both good as well as the leads of their stories. Special credit going to DeLon for playing both versions of William and his. The good version isn't as fleshed out, but what does for the villain is great. Bardot does great as Jessapina who stands up to William. The same can be said for Peter Fonda as he stands up to Frederike. What is interesting here is the implications that she has fallen in love with him, who is her cousin, but Peter and Jane are brother and sister in real life. Since they're cousins here, it does still add that incestuous angle to their story. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. In most stories, where they are pushing our leads to and where they end up in the story at the end of it is also really solid in my opinion. So the last thing I'll go into here would be the cinematography effects and the soundtrack. For the former, these are all shot beautifully. I already gave credit to Fellini for the surreal take on his story. Vadum did a great job in making this period piece with Metzingerstein. It's also kind of interesting as well, having seen some of his, his other movie, you know, Blood and Roses. But what I like for this one is that we have this feel of depravity going on without going too graphic. William Wilson is the most grounded of the three, but I think that what they have done there is done well in building tension. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but they also don't need that. It is from 68, so there's a bit more limits to what they could do. I think that this is good overall for that still. The soundtrack also fit for what was needed. It doesn't stand out or hurt the film in my opinion. So then before I close this out, I do have a little bit of trivia that I'm going to share from the IMDb page. Now, in Fellini's segment, Stamp plays an actor arriving in Rome to do a film, but as they leave the airport to go to a city, he suddenly sits up and asks where his Ferrari is. He was promised one. This is a humorous reference to a behind-the-scenes situation in the film The Witches from the year before, where Clint Eastwood was enticed to play a small role in exchange for a Ferrari. This was originally going to have Orson Welles, Luis Buena, and Fellini direct. Peter O'Toole was originally cast as Toby Dammit. He pulled out, so Fellini contacted a casting agency in London and asked them to send their most decadent actors that they had to roam for him to see. They sent Stamp and James Fox, and Fellini chose Stamp. While filming the Metzingerstein segment with his sister Jane Fonda and brother-in-law Vadum, oh, that's kind of interesting, I didn't realize that, in Roscoff, Brittany, Peter Fonda would spend up to four hours a day working on the script that would become Easy Rider. 
Terry Sutheran, who worked on Barbarella with Vadum, visited the set and would help Fonda with his script, getting a co-writer credit on Easy Rider in the process. Marlon Brando and Richard Burton were considered for the role of Toby Dammit. Only filmed to feature siblings of the Fondas as they play cousins. Malay was originally wanted then-model Florinda Bulkin to play the part that would eventually go to Bardot. When Toby Dammit arrives at the Rome airport, he is received by a Catholic priest who introduces himself as Fratelli Mantinetti. Two brothers who worked in cinema. The Manetti brothers is now the artistic name of the two Italian directors of Marco and Antonio Manetti. Fellini spent most of 67 working on the voyage of G. Mestrani with Marcello Mestronani and Dino Di Laurentiis, but it collapsed due to health and personal problems suffered from by the director. This is the first work since Juliet of the Spirits, 1965. The director of photography, Giuseppe Rotuno, screened a restored print of Fellini's Toby Dammit at the Tribeca Festival in 2008. Its release in Great Britain was long delayed early until 73, when only a handful of showings under the name of Tales of Mystery. As of 2019, it's never shown on British television. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie. When it ended, I was a bit let down, but the more that I've sat with it, the better it has gotten for me. I think this is an anthology that does well. We are getting three post stories that are focusing on certain characters. The acting from our leads is good in establishing that role. The rest of the cast pushes them to where they end up. I think the cinematography is great across the board. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't need it. The soundtrack fit for what was needed. And I would say that for me, this is a good movie, just lacking a bit for me to go higher. So my rating here for Spirits of the Dead is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. And I would like to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close everything out here for episode 108, if you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have run on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews for anything that is horror or non-horror alike. Then my Instagram is David OSU87. And the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Over there, I'll be posting all of the movie posters of anything that I'm reviewing. And then just to make it easier for you, as always, I will have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review, just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out there to new listeners. So coming out of here of Italian Horror Month, I'm going to be going in next to my winter year-end type episodes, which this looks like it is going to be number 10 and the first two movies that i'm gonna have paired up for you is i'm also gonna be doing my 2021 roundup trying to watch all the ones that i haven't and do some rewatches in there as well for the 2021 film i'm going to watch prisoners of a ghost land i think this will make an interesting little pair up with Bloodbeat, as i was looking for you know either a winter or christmas horror movie and that one looks like it is a christmas one from what i could tell so those will be the two featured reviews and then i will of course have you know more mini ones in there for you think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off.
It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.